morning. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord at Dorisville Baptist Church. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and find Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We'll be looking at verse 15 down through verse 21. I have been praying about these days for months now. And um, I believe that the Lord has revealed to me that we have two paths that we could take this week. The one path is I will do my best to keep you awake and entertained for the moments that we're together, which will hold little to any eternal value. And you will go on with life as normal next Sunday. And uh, you might even walk out one night and say, that was a really good service. I can't tell you how much I don't want that to happen. The other path is that we cry out to God and we say, God, change us. God, meet with us. Sweep through this place with your Holy Spirit and rock our world. We can start down one of two paths this morning. So if you'd allow me, I'd like to begin with prayer. Father, you alone know of my insufficiency for this hour. God, we know the sufficiency of your word. And Father, we know that all that we could ask or dream is incredibly short of what you really want to do. So Father, like you did in Wales, God, would you move that way again? God, like you did in the first and second great awakenings, God, would you do that again? And would you begin here in this building today? Father, may what we experience by the moving of your presence this week result in thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ. God, this is a big ask, but I'm asking because you're a big God. Father, you've done it in our past. We want to see you do it in our now. God, we want to be a part of it. So, Father, I'm asking that you break us this week. Allow us, God, to see our sinfulness before you. And, God, give us the space and the strength to repent. And so, God, we want to ask you for big things. Not because we deserve it but because, God, we know you can. Spirit of God, speak to us individually today. Even those, God, that have come in here today wanting to leave normal, I pray, Father, you'll mess us up real good. Thank you, God, for your word. We humbly submit ourselves under you and under your word today and ask that God you would glorify yourself in this place 
We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, for His kingdom, for His sake, and for His glory alone. Amen. Matthew chapter 22. It's an interesting passage. Interesting enough that when I shared with your pastor what I was preaching, I did see his eyebrows move up two inches. This is the story. This is the passage where you hear Jesus say, Render or give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Which traditionally has been a passage that pastors have used to preach on tithing, giving to the church. There's one problem with that. That's not what this is about. So if you're the church treasurer, I have seen this cause heart attacks in church treasurers. And so if you're sitting near your church treasurer, be be ready. That's all I'm saying. This passage is not about tithing. It's not about giving to the local New Testament church. Now before I go any further, tithing and giving to the local New Testament church is biblical and we should do it. But this passage is not addressing that. So we're, gonna, we're just going to open God's Word this morning. We're going to walk through verse 15 down through verse 21 together. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 22. God's Word says, Then the Pharisees and, uh, went and plotted how they might entangle Him, that's Jesus, in His talk. And they sent to Him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, We know that you are true and teach the word of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone. That's actually um, supposed to be a compliment. It doesn't sound like it in English, but, but it's meant to be a compliment. You don't care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, verse 18, and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render, or give back to, uh, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The question that I want to pose today is, Do you have religion? Or do you have a relationship with the God of creation? And this passage is a powerful story about Jesus addressing the heart issue that these men had religion in their life. They were a part of uh, doing good moral things. But the one thing that was absent was they... We're not in a relationship with God. Let me set the stage for you there in verse 15 and 16. The Bible says that these Pharisees, actually they send their disciples, they don't even go themselves, they send their disciples with the Herodians to speak to Jesus. They actually come to Jesus on what I would call false pretenses. You see the disciples of the Pharisees and you see the Herodians coming together and they are strange bedfellows. You would never see the Pharisees and the Herodians hanging out together. Let me tell you why. The Pharisees loved Israel. They loved the law. They wanted to live according to God's Word. And they were good Jewish men. They were the Pharisees. Well, the Herodians were also Jews. But they were loyal to the family of Herod. And Herod was the puppet governor of Rome. 
So the Pharisees, in every other circumstance, despised these Herodians. It just simply didn't work in their mind for them to think, you're a good Jew and you're loyal to Rome. When a good Jew should love the Lord and love his law and live according to God's law and detest pagan Rome. But they come together, I think, on false pretenses to address an issue with Jesus. Both of these groups had issues with Jesus. They wanted Jesus to verbally condemn himself so that he could either be convicted of treason or charged with breaking Old Testament law. Of course, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to verbally condemn himself so that he could be charged with breaking Old Testament law. But the Herodians, who were loyal to the puppet governor of Rome, wanted Jesus to verbally condemn himself so that he could be tried for treason against Rome. They came on false pretenses, but they also used fake flattery. Look what the Bible says. And they sent to him, verse 16, their disciples with the Herodians. Boy, that's a bad... You can tell they're Baptists. Um, right there. I mean, they didn't go do it themselves. They sent somebody else to do their dirty work. Sorry. I've been in church a long time, and we are broken, fallen people. Amen? Verse 16, they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying... Teacher. Now, that right there is a word of respect and endearment. They didn't mean that. Uh, they didn't trust Jesus. They didn't like what he was... The Pharisees certainly did not like what Jesus was saying. So they said, Teacher, we know that you are true. No, you don't. Because if you did, you wouldn't be there to entangle him, like verse 15 says, in his talk. We know that you are true. It's a lie. And that you teach the way of God and truth. Now, you know the Pharisees do not believe that. Because if they really believed he taught the way of God and truth, they would leave him alone. They'd pray for him and encourage him. But what they were saying publicly is not how they felt on the inside. We know that you teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. That literally means the face of men. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't prejudge people, Jesus, based on what they look like. Jesus, you're, you're a man that, that receives people of all races and, and uh, eco, economic status. You just receive everybody. They're, they're trying to be complimentary, but their heart is not in it. They use fake flattery. The, po- the problem is that these are fallen men, and they have run into the sovereign God of the universe. Watch what the Bible says. Here's their trick in verse 17. We're going to spend time on it in just a a moment, but let me read it. This is what they say. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we're going to deal with that in just a moment, but watch what happens in verse 18. The Bible says that Jesus perceived their wickedness. That word perceived is an interesting Greek word. It means that Jesus intimately and experientially knew what was going on inside of their hearts. Only the God of the ages could do that. John chapter 1, verse 1, that we may spend some time on this week. Uh, I pray you'll come back Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But John chapter 1, verse 1 is a beautiful verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made that He Himself did not make. That's verse 2. Down in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Those three verses testify that Jesus is eternal in nature, but that also He is co-equal with the Father. 
So anything else might have been said as blasphemous, but it is clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so when he meets up with these guys, they have no clue who they run into. He is the sovereign God of the universe that has robed himself in flesh and he's walking among sinful men. And so when they, when they come to him on false pretenses using fake flattery, Jesus knows what is going on in their heart. There's a couple of words that are used here. Verse 18, look at it. But Jesus perceived that as he intimately and experientially knew what was going on inside of their hearts and minds. And the Bible says that he perceived their wickedness. Interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word paneria. Here, it is more than just uh, committing one sin or, or a shortcoming. The word means taking pleasure in evil. Notice what they said in verse 16. They come with flowery words of flattery. I don't know if you know anybody that their mouth says one thing, but their mode of living says something differently. And they, they just come and ask a very innocent question. But the Bible says that Jesus knew that these men took pleasure in evil. Now I want you to see this. The Pharisees were known to be the godliest men in the community. There wasn't anybody who strived harder to be godly people than the Pharisees. And when Jesus met these religious elite, the Bible says His commentary on their life was that they took pleasure in evil. You know, many of us have gone to church most, if not our entire lives. We know the game. We know the vocabulary. We know how to dress. We know how to talk. We know where the bathrooms are in every portion of the church. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. God knows what's going on inside of our hearts. And we could be religious and be far from God. Secondly, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Interesting word. It's the Greek word, hypocritai. I just know you felt the spirit when I said that. Um, a funny word. So we translate that word hypocrite. But the sense of the word, it's the same word that was used for an actor in Greek theater. Back then, when they would hire actors and actresses, they really didn't hire actresses, they would hire men and they would change costumes in between scenes. So in one scene, they would wear this mask. You've seen, right, the, the image for uh, acting, right? It has the mask that's smiling and the mask that's frowning because, and that, that goes back to this word, hypocrite, it's an actor. They would simply change masks in between scenes. So you would play this role in this scene and then in the next scene you would, you would wear another mask and play a, a different role. Jesus says, you're hypocrites. You're pretenders. I know that what you're saying is not really what's going on. You guys, you're acting one way, but it's really not who you are. You know, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And do you realize the same God that created in Genesis chapter 1, that's testified of in John chapter 1, the same Jesus that's 
having this dialogue with the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, do you know that he still sits on his throne to this day? Do you know that he was crucified and that he was bodily resurrected from the tomb? You know that, right? And that he gloriously ascended to the Father. You, you know that, right? And that he's sitting on the throne. What bothers me most about this portion of Scripture is that same Jesus not only knew the motivations of their heart, but he knows the motivations of my heart and your heart today as well. What you thought this morning, he knew you were going to think it before you thought it. The words you used this week before you said them, God knew what you were going to say. Those things that we have done in secret, our God saw every one of those. There is nothing hidden from the eyes of our God. We may wear the fancy clothes on the outside and say the right words with our lips, but the fact of the matter is, God knows if our lifestyle denies what we've said. When I was a little boy, I had the privilege of hearing my dad preach over and over and over and over again. I knew every illustration that he would repeat. One of those is about the little boy that's shopping with his dad. And his dad turns to the right and looks. And he turns to the left and looks. And he turns behind him and looks. And he takes something from the grocery store and slips it inside of his coat. His little boy tugs on his, on his coat. And then daddy looks down and he says, Daddy, you forgot to look up. There is nothing hidden from our God. Well, what is the point? Well, it's actually a recurring theme in the book of Matthew. Let me quickly tell you a couple of stories. The heart of, this, of the matter has been this recurring theme through the book of Matthew. And that is, okay, you, you know the do's, the don'ts, you know the rules and the regulations, but, but do you know the real God? Do you remember when Jesus cleansed the temple and we all talk about how he got angry so it's okay for us to get angry? It's not. I mean, he's Jesus. He knows how to be angry without sin and I haven't figured out how to do that, Okay. You remember when he walks in, he starts flipping over the tables of the money changers, and he says, my house was supposed to be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You remember that? Do you know what he's really upset about? Everybody said, well, they were cheating people, and there was probably some misappropriation of funds going on. But really, the heart of the matter was that they had taken the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles was the place that God had designed in the temple so that Gentiles could come there and worship the only true God. There was a portion of the temple that only Jews could go in because they were supposed to be the light of God into the world. Part of that meant was they were supposed to point Gentiles to God. So they had this court of the Gentiles. But instead of loving Gentiles to the Lord, they despised the Gentiles. Now, when they would come every year on Yom Kippur, the day of sacrifice, for the high priest to make the sacrifice for the people, for the sins of the people for the year, everybody would travel in. All Jewish people, all faithful Jews would travel in with their sacrifice. They would bring turtle doves if they were poor. They would bring uh, an actual lamb if they had the, the financial means to do that. And they would travel and bring these things the whole way. They would come there. They would have their their offering inspected by the priest, and then they would offer their offering for the sins of their family. And the Jews said, you know what? And that's work. So let's do this. Let's set up 
a convenient mart in the court of Gentiles. They don't need to come worship anyway. So let's set up a convenient mart here. And then when Jews come to town, they can just purchase their offering here, pre-approved by the priest. Here's the problem with that. It really costs them nothing to buy a pre-approved offering in the temple. See, the way God intended it is you would, you would notice a young lamb. And this lamb was better than the rest of your lambs. And you would early on from birth set that lamb apart and you would teach your family about the fact that here is the spotless, this is the lamb without blemish. And you and your family would raise that little lamb. And it, it, was, it was meant to be that, that teaching moment where you would teach your children, now we're going to do everything we can to protect this lamb because when the Day of Atonement comes, we're going to take our lamb up to Jerusalem and we're going to let this lamb be slaughtered in our place because we deserve it because of what we've done against God. But, but we're going to take our lamb. And they would have to bring that lamb all the way up to Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever had a dog, but... Man, I get attached in like two days. That's why we don't have a dog. Because they get hit by cars, they run off. They like the girl dog down the street and never want to come home. I mean, just, I can't do it, all right? I, I just, the emotional capacity, I just don't have it. Can you imagine what it would be like for a little boy, a little girl to take that little lamb up to Jerusalem and have it slaughtered in their place? You see, worship ought to be costly. If you come in to worship on Sunday morning and you don't leave spent, something is wrong. It means you're not giving anything. Now, I'm not talking about your checkbook. I'm talking about worship is more than money. Amen. I don't leave exhausted on Sunday morning because I have spilt my energy and life out in worship to the one true God. Worship ought to cost something. So when Jesus goes up to the temple, he's like, I, I just, it's hard for me to figure. And worshiping God. Okay, so you're checking the box. I, I got a lamb. I took it to the priest. They killed the lamb. They spilled the blood. We're good. They have checked all the boxes of religion, but they have missed the heart of it. And how many times do we check the boxes of religion every, every weekend? Call it good. There's another story that really bothers me. Jesus is walking in the book of Matthew. And he sees a fig tree. And the fig tree has leaves all over it. And they tell us that when a fig tree in the Middle East has leaves, that's a sign that the figs are ready to eat. That there's actually figs on the tree. So, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is walking with his disciples. He walks up to a tree, a fig tree that has leaves. He begins to rummage through the leaves and he finds out there is no figs on this tree. And the Bible teaches us that he pronounces a curse on that tree. They go on into town. And when they come out a day later, there's a discussion between the disciples and this is what they say. Isn't that the tree that Jesus cursed? And in fact, it is. It has shriveled and died. And the question is, why? I think it's pretty simple. That tree was proclaiming to have something it didn't. 
This is what I wonder. We claim the name of Jesus. But I wonder if we're not proclaiming something we're not. Could it be that we wear the cross around our neck? Could it be that we wear the Jesus t-shirts, but our heart is actually far from God? Say, Tim, what's the point of this whole thing? Well, I think when you read this, verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Then Jesus finally comes down to verse 19 and he says, show me the tax money. Stay with me. I promise you're going to be like, I never saw that. So they brought him a denarius. That's a Latin coin. You can tell by the IUS ending. It, it is a, it's a Latin coin. They brought him a Roman coin. And Jesus said, whose image and inscription is this? In other words, whose image is on the coin and whose inscription is on the coin? They would have the image of the sitting emperor from about here up, just like we do on our coins. It's amazing where we get stuff. And uh, they would have that image, and then there would be the inscription. The inscription would be the name of the sitting emperor. And this is what Jesus says. Whose image and inscription is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. So he said to them, then render, or better translated, give back to, because we don't say the word render anymore, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is what I think. I think Jesus is implying, if you miss this, you'll miss the end of the message. Jesus is implying that we need to identify, number one, what is created in the image of God, and number two, has been engraved with his name. And I think if we can identify what was created in the image of God and what has been engraved with his name, then we will understand exactly what Jesus is saying to these men. Whose image in the description? Well, it's Caesar's. Okay, then you give to Caesar that which bears his image and inscription. And you give to God that which bears his image and inscription. So we need to identify quickly what was created in the image of God. Number two, what has been engraved with his name. Well, let's talk about the image of God. Here's the correct understanding of this head tax illustration that Jesus used. Okay, there's, there's a passage that you need to be familiar with so that you understand what's going on in the New Testament. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it'll be on the screen. Let's read this together. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men, you are created in the image of God. Ladies, you are created in the image of God. You and I, every human that's ever been born on the face of the planet, was born, was fashioned, created in the image of God. The psalmist tells us that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That you were knit together in your mother's womb by the Creator. No other animal, no fish, no bird, nothing was created in the image of God save the human race. You were created in the image of God. These men who came to Jesus were created in the image of God. They are image Bearers. Number two, what about the inscription? Well, at this time it was probably Tiberius Caesar. That would probably have been the reigning emperor of this day. So the coin would have said Tiberius Caesar. So then Jesus said, whoever bears God's image and inscription, you need to give that to God. Well, 
What about us? Well, Luke quotes the Lord from Amos chapter 9 in Acts chapter 15, verse 17. This is what it says. So the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by, say it, my name. Do you know Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, the first part? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Do you understand that you are created in the image of God and that you are an image bearer of the creator of the universe? And I think the Bible is clear that we have been called after his name. So, Tim, what's the point? Well, the point is this. These guys guys had given themselves to rule following, but they had not given themselves to God. I think Jesus argues here that their religiosity is not an acceptable substitute for a relationship with God. Giving themselves to good deeds or rule following offers absolutely no hope for the, for the forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus sees and knows that these men are pretenders. When I was negative nine months old, I started attending Sunday school in a Southern Baptist church. I didn't have a choice. My dad... And my mom had been saved radically in 1970. My dad was a brutal alcoholic. And God saved him in a tent revival in July of 1970 and altered the course of my family's history. And after dad got saved, he thought he better start going to church. So he did. When I was negative nine months old, I attended my first Sunday school class and sat in worship at Anna Heights Baptist Church. And Al Slater was the pastor I didn't hear it very well because I was still in the womb. But I was there. I've been a part of church my entire life. I don't really know anything else. I have skipped church on very few occasions. Like I had the flu. Some of us, even though... We know what the Scripture says. We are doing our best to try to make God happy by what we do. And we still think, even though we talk about grace, we talk about God's mercy and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we somehow think, if I work hard enough, even if this grace thing doesn't work out, when I stand before God, God's going to go, you know what, you tried your hardest, I'm going to let you in. I want to be as clear as I can. There is nothing you can ever do to merit the favor of God. And if you try your hardest every day and you don't cheat on your wife and you don't kill anybody, you don't steal from work, and you stand before God and you don't know Jesus Christ, you will still go to hell for eternity. There is not another way. God's not going to make an exception on your part. But I'm a pretty good guy. It doesn't matter. You're going to go to hell if you don't know Jesus. By the way, he sees and knows if we're pretending today. See, these guys here, they had failed to give themselves completely to God. They had failed to give themselves completely to God. 
this year, I had the privilege of directing IBSA Super Summer. And when I say privilege, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I love doing the ministry. I really hate the negative emails I get afterwards. But it's part of ministry. Amen. And this year, our theme was surrendered more than committed. Dr. Alvin Reed, friend and former professor of uh, when I was at Southeastern Seminary, he shared in his book, More Than a Movement, that a preacher issued a white sheet of paper to everyone in the congregation. And he said, if you are committed to God, I want you to write down all the things you're willing to do and sign your name at the bottom. I'm willing to teach a Sunday school class. I'm willing to sing in the choir. Willing to be a deacon. I'm willing to go on a short-term mission trip. And then you sign your name. That is a person who's committed. But the Bible never asks you and I to be committed. The Bible asks us to surrender our lives. And so he said, if you're surrendered, you'll take that clean white sheet of paper, nothing written on it, and sign your name at the bottom and give it to God. God, you write my story. My life is yours. It is not mine. It never has been. It never will be. I am wholly yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when we come to Jesus, he bids us come and die. And that's the problem. Some of us are still alive. The Bible said if we would follow Jesus, we should take up our cross daily and follow Him. The cross is an instrument of death. It's not a pretty thing that we wear. It's where our Savior was died. And so if you and I are going to do this thing called Christianity in a real way, it means that we have to get up every day and die to ourselves so that God may live through us. But some of us are sitting in here today and we've got one hand on the world and one hand on God. And we're praying that at the end of time we did just about enough that God's going to let us in. But God didn't ask us to be committed. God didn't ask us to try our best. He asked us to die to ourselves so that Christ could live in us. There is anemia in the American church today. And it's because we are half Hearted, not sold out, not surrendered, still alive, walking and trying to do our best for God. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 8, These people, oh, I don't want this to be said of us. These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus sees and knows if we too are pretenders. Those who have a form of godliness but have denied the power thereof. I had the privilege uh, a couple of months ago to spend some time with um, Dr. Danny Aiken. And uh, it's interesting when you have conversation with people who know really important people. And he knows really important people. When I was in seminary at Southeastern, uh, a young man by the name of Will Graham was finishing his MDiv. You may not know Will Graham. He's named after his grandfather, Billy. And so Will's finishing seminary, and I'm just coming in, and everybody was just 
Hey, can I meet your grandfather? Can I meet your grandfather? Can I meet your grandfather? And uh, one day Will uh, went to Dr. Aiken and he said, uh, Dr. Aiken, would you like to meet my grandfather? Do you know who Billy Graham is? Have you ever heard of that guy? He said, Dr. Aiken, would you like to meet my grandfather? Dr. Aiken, when he tells the story, says, I prayed about it and said, or he said, let me pray about that. Yes. So they set up the day for Dr. Aiken to go and sit down with Dr. Billy Graham. And you've got to know that he doesn't have all good days anymore. He's an old man. So Dr. Aiken said he had one question that he wanted to ask him. And here was the question. He said, Dr. Graham, you have said that you believe after all of your ministry and work in the United States, you believe that as many as 50% of those who sit in church on Sunday are lost and apart from God. Do you really believe that? And this is what Dr. Graham said. Danny, I'm afraid it's higher than that. I'm afraid it's higher than that. You might be able to convince those in your Sunday school class that you are a surrendered follower of Christ. You might even be able to fool your kids. I doubt you can fool your spouse, but you might. But as sure as we're sitting here today, God knows whether or not you are wholly His or you're not. God knows if you're fully surrendered or you're not. God knows if you're involved in gossip, backstabbing. God knows if you're bitter and you're holding a grudge. God knows about your secret sin. He knows about mine. God knows everything. The question is, what is it that God is calling you to turn loose of? I mean, you're a divided heart. You really want to love Jesus, but man, this is so fun. Let me just say, whatever is your treasure is also your God. Whatever it is that you treasure above everything else, that is your God. And for some of us, it's our spouse. By the way, that idol will fall. That marriage will crumble. And for some of us, our idol, our treasure, is our children. And by the way, that idol will fall because nothing will stand before God. You want a good way to wreck your children's life? Love them more than you love God. That is a perfect recipe to destroy your children's lives. So the question is, what is it that, what is it in your life that God has been calling you away from to himself? When he looks at us, does he say, 
You're pretending. You've been pretending. You know how to act so that everybody else is fooled, but I know you're pretending. Listen, I had been praying, and it's funny, your pastor prayed when he prayed for me this morning. It's funny what he prayed. He said, man, I just pray that God, uh, we won't think of somebody else needing this, that, that I need this. And I thought, man, that's weird. I've been praying that all week. That we would sit here in this service and we wouldn't think, man, that guy over there needs this sermon. I, I, and he may, all right, amen. That guy may. But, but what about me? In the course of history, the sovereign God of the universe purposed that you would be sitting in this room on this day to hear from His Word. And the question is, how is it we're going to respond to God today? What is it that we've given our life to that's ultimately empty? And God's saying to you today, I want you fully surrendered. I want to change Harrisburg and Southern Illinois through you. But you've got to turn loose. Some of you are holding on to stuff in this world that you need to turn loose of. Some of you have never been saved, and you need to be saved this day. And stop the pretending. Last illustration, and I'm done. My wife and I, um, when we met, uh, the first time there were some women trying to set us up, and we didn't want to meet because I was engaged to a real pretty deacon's daughter, and she was dating a really ugly guy. And that's my, it's my commentary, uh, not my wife's. Okay? So the first time we tried to, they, we didn't want to meet. Four years later, I'm preaching uh, down there again, and I meet some ladies uh, in a Walmart in Anna, and they were like, hey, come play uh, softball for our men's team at church. I thought they wanted me for my incredible softball skill. <laughs> Evidently, it was just to set Michelle and I up. And we met that night. I, watched, I went early and watched her play. She's a phenomenal ball player. She played for Vianna High School and uh, could have played college ball. She's just a great athlete. So I enjoyed watching her play. Listen, God, God blesses us even when we don't deserve it. My wife loves football, baseball, NASCAR. I mean, she's a godly woman. I mean, you can just tell. And the first time that night after the softball game, we went to Pizza Hut in Anna. Me and her and four of my best guy friends, in case I didn't like her. And... Uh, But that night I knew I, I really, I, I like her. And I told my best friend the next day I'm going to marry her. I didn't know until three months later when I proposed that she told her best friend the next day she was going to marry me. That's a miracle of God because I'm a bald, fat preacher. That's like strike one, strike two, and strike three. But God, men, testify with me. God is still blinding the eyes of beautiful women. Amen. That's good preaching. We went on our first real date to a place called Patty's Place. Anybody ever heard of Patty's? Let me tell you, the Spirit of God is on that two-inch pork chop down there. <laughs> we ordered, and the server went away. And this is what I said to her. You know I'm a pastor. And I've given my entire life to God for Him to use for His glory. So I need you to tell me about your relationship with Christ. You realize we can't have date number two if she's lost because the Bible does not advocate missionary dating. 
So I need to know right now where you stand. I'm buying you an expensive pork chop. Tell me about Jesus. <laughs> and sitting at Patty's place in Paducah, Kentucky, or South Grand Rivers, we're sitting there. Now, you don't know my wife. She's a deacon's daughter. She's always been in church. Her dad is now an elder at a church in southern Illinois. And she said to me, when I was eight years old, we had a revival service, and I walked the aisle with two or three of my girlfriends, and the pastor sat us on the front pew, and he said, did you all come to be saved? And she said, we all shook our heads. He said, well, if you want to be saved, repeat this prayer after me. And so she said, we, we said the words that he said. And he said, then he said, say amen. And we said amen. And he said, did you pray that prayer? And they, all those girls shook their head. He said, did you mean it? What are you going to say? She goes, yeah. He said, then you're saved and on your way to heaven. And my wife's testimony is this. She got up that night knowing there was nothing different about her. Because saying words doesn't save you. Repentance and faith saves you. Nothing else can save you. She went through her entire teenage years and her first year at college at Southwest Baptist University and she was scared to death to die because she knew she was lost and undone. She hadn't missed Sunday or Sunday night or Wednesday night church. She didn't do that. She's a good deacon's daughter. She, she was a good, good, good person. But she was lost. And if she had died, she'd have gone to hell. And she came back after her first year at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar. She was at a revival meeting. And one night in church, she said, I had had enough. And the conviction of the Spirit of God was so strong in my life. I knew that tonight I had to, I had to change things. And what she was worried about was what everybody would think about her. She was worried about what her mom would think and what her dad would think, that she was lost all these years. Guess who was the happiest of all? Her mom and dad. And that night, three months before we met on a softball field, God saved her by His grace and set her free from her sin, which is good because it's really bad for a preacher to be married to a lost girl. Amen. Some of you this morning are sitting in this place and you've been carrying that burden for years. And you've been in church your whole life. You might have prayed a prayer. You might have even been baptized. But you know, and God knows, that if you were to die today, you would not make heaven. There's no better way to be renewed than to have the Spirit of God regenerate you by saving faith. So in just a moment, we're going to sing. And if you're here today and you need to be saved, your pastor's going to stand right here. I want you to come to him and I want you to say, I'm lost. Listen, I don't care if you're a deacon. I really don't. God doesn't care what your title is either. If you need to be saved, today's the day of salvation. I don't care if you've been a Sunday school teacher for 35 years. If you need to be saved, stop putting it off and letting the devil have victory in your life. Don't do that anymore. So that's invitation number one. The second part of the invitation is this. 
What is it that while I'm preaching, God has illumined in your heart that you have not surrendered to Him? What part of the world is holding you back? Let's pray. God in heaven, help us this day as we are created in your image. We bear your name. Help us, God, to give ourselves completely to you and not hold anything back. Help us, God, in these moments here at the end of this service, that, God, we would be serious about our sin, that, God, we would take this time to fall on our face before you, confess our sin before you, repent of our sin, turn away from it, and turn completely to you. Spirit of God, fall upon us right now. Show us, God, where in our life we are not pleasing to you. And help us, God, begin this week rightly, getting our lives right with you. God, be glorified in this time. Thank you, God, for your goodness. And thank you, God, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.